Hello and welcome to the ENJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I am one of the associate editors of the journal. And what I'm doing today is bringing you the highlights from the May 2019 issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. So, quite a lot going on this month, pretty packed um, edition. And we've got a primary survey which has been written by our own Ellen Weber, senior editor of the journal. So, what she picked up this month that you need to go and have a look at? Well, there's quite a lot of uh, clinical stuff in here, there's some opinion, and there's some really some quite some challenging stuff about working practice, which if you're a consultant in the UK, you definitely want to have a listen to and read about. So let's start with um, emergency physicians. What are we proud of? We're, we're proud of our ability to perform life-saving procedures, but the opportunities to use some of those are pretty infrequent. And I think a lot of people worry about the loss of skills. And in particular, now that we've had a regionalization of a lot of services, that can really affect you as well. For instance, I, well, I don't see a lot of stroke patients anymore because they go to the hospital down the road. So in this study, we've got a couple of studies addressing how often we need a refresher. And they come to really quite different conclusions, really. And the editor's choice paper is an RCT of training on a mechanical CPR device, and that's done by Andrew Coggins et al. And in that study, after initial training and baseline assessment on the Lucas 3 device, you know, the big thumper that goes up and down on the chest, electronic thingy, the intervention group received a refresher at four months, while the control group didn't. And then everybody was retested again at six months after their initial training. So in the intervention group, um, they were faster at starting CPR with the device and they made fewer errors, suggesting that there's already significant decline um, even within those short time periods without the refresher. So that's that's a big worry. And I suppose a lot of departments now are trying to do things like in-situ sim and in-house training to keep people up to speed, but it's difficult to get through everybody in the department. In contrast, Craig et al. looked at 1,332 paediatric emergency medicine specialists at 96 um, emergency departments across the world, asking how often they thought they needed to retrain on 18 particular skills. There was a huge variability here, recommendations ranging from one month to one year. Things like bag valve mouse ventilation, CPR, endotrial intubation were recommended for three monthly or six monthly practice by, well, nearly two thirds of respondents. And the rest suggested about a year. So we've got an interesting commentary by Ruth Brown, um, who's a leading educator on this, to help reconcile those findings, which is interesting and takes us through some of the educational theory behind how frequently we require to practice to retain skills, but also challenges as well whether or not we do need to in multi-professional, multidisciplinary teams. I think this is going to be a little bit controversial. I have a personal view, of course, which is I think the emergency physician should be able to resuscitate patients. I know it's controversial, but, you know, it's what I believe. Um, and therefore, you've got to be able to be competent in the skills. How competent is not really addressed in any of these articles, because being superb at something is obviously desirable, but good enough might be good enough. And that's a little bit more tricky to understand. So anyway, have a think about this. I think it's going to be, you'll get a lot of different views coming out of this. And I would read Ruth Brown's article, actually, the, the commentary, because Ruth is a very, very good thinker, deep thinker in this area. And um, she presents a really interesting um, argument there. And then we go on to a timely refresher on measles. Now, starting a little bit strangely, uh, Dr. David Jordan, an ichthyologist at Stanford University, was renowned for his encyclopedic knowledge of fish. 
but he had trouble learning his students' names and finally gave up saying, every time I learn the name of a student, I forgot the name of a fish. So now you've acquired new knowledge in your career. What do you remember about measles? In 2000, the USA proclaimed that measles had been eradicated from the country. <laughs> How little did we know? And then now we've got an epidemic of measles, largely blamed on anti-vaxxers, recently erupted in the northwest of the USA. And we've seen this in the UK as well. And it's going down the west coast of the US at the moment. Um, worldwide, 2018 saw the largest number of measles caused across the past decade, with the number of cases in Europe tripling from the prior year. So measles in the UK itself rose, jumped threefold from 259 in 2017 to 913 in 2018. I certainly saw a few of them. Would you recognise it? Would you know how to deal with it? Would you know how to prevent transmission and stuff? There's a great article this month in here about recognising measles. I picked up a few things and I actually see quite a lot of measles because of where I am in the country. So have a look at that. It will help you um, make those difficult decisions because actually I'm seeing a lot of parents bring their kids into the department with a non-specific viral rash and saying, is it measles? It's helpful to have some information about why it's not. Then we go on to something old, something new, um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. I'm sure you use them all the time. Do you? Well, recently increased um, use for the treatment of a variety of cancers, and they hold substantial promise, but got quite a few challenges for us in emergency medicine. Um, so toxicity from these immune checkpoint inhibitors, or immune-related adverse events, or IRAs, I think, may look like other diseases, and patients may not know, or the physicians may not ask what drugs they are on at the time, so we may miss this. So in a study by Peroni et al, they found that of 409 patients being treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors at their institution in Paris uh, over five years, between 2012 and 2017, a third of those came to the ED, and about one in, uh, one in eight of those were due to the effect of these drugs. So based on chart review, physicians identified that only half of those IRA-affected patients, so a complication of that therapy, um, and only half of those was it considered, and only 17% um, was actually spotted. So that's not terribly good, really. So very valuable if you're um, a clinician um, looking at risk factors of patients who are on these drugs and gives you a nice little table, actually, on how to spot the symptoms and signs. So I think we're going to see more of this as, as cancer therapies change. So uh, definitely one to look out for. So measles, all the old stuff that you need to re-remember, IRA, some new stuff which you need to learn. Then we're going to go on to major incidents and the triage sort, uh, an area which I have some, some skin in the game on this one, so I'm going to keep my conflict of interest out. But this is a study with arguably fairly wide-reaching implications on current triage procedures in a mass casualty incident. So standard practice in the UK and elsewhere is we do a two-stage triage. Uh, triage um, at the scene, the primary triage, often called the triage sieve, and then a more detailed assessment, the triage sort, which is actually based on the revised trauma score. So the value of the secondary assessment not really been looked at in a civilian population. And so uh, Vasilo and Smith looked at the Tarn database, um, huge number of patients, um, compared the performance of the triage sort, the National Ambulance Resilience Unit CIV and the Modified Physiological Triage Tool 24, um, which I think one of them, I think that was Jamie's work, um, in their ability to identify patients who went on to receive life-saving interventions, which is good because uh, somebody's actually measuring a triage score on the requirement for life-saving interventions and not things like death or ICU days. So this is really good quality. It's a good process. And if you're interested in triage scores and how they should be measured, read this paper. It's a lot better than a lot of the stuff which is out there. So triage sort had the highest underrated triage, under triage rate. So it was pretty specific, but it missed quite a few patients with um, significant um, problems. Um, whereas we need to think, therefore, about whether or not it's the right one to use. I have a look at the other scores there. It's um, quite interesting to see the difference in performance. 
Then we're going to look at the National Early Warning Score. Um, RCP, Royal College of Physicians, says that we should do this to everybody, even in outpatient settings, really. But in a generally well population, news, early warning score, could result in false positives, um, identifying patients who are not sick yet score high. And this was a worry. So Scott et al. Um, studied the distribution of news scores after it was rolled out to the entire healthcare system in 2015 across the west of England. And I suppose reassuringly, less than 20% of those scored in the community had a score high enough to refer them to the ED, so a score of five or more, so which is a good thing. Um, but the author suggests that the findings are fairly reassuring because of that. Um, so they're not going to be over triaged to us. Um, but we probably need to see follow-up studies to see if the number of actual visits changed. Because just because somebody was told they didn't have to go to ED doesn't mean they didn't go to ED. Then finally, we're going to finish off with some reader's choice. So in the US, where Ellen works, and increasingly in the UK, actually, night working for consultants is, is just a given. Nobody particularly likes it. Um, at non-teaching hospitals, then there's only consultants working in the US. And in the academic setting, they have to safeguard the patients and provide teaching to the trainees 24-7, which is not a bad thing. In the UK, ED consultants have only recently started working nights and where senior registrars are likely as experienced as many US residency graduates. That's Ellen's words, not mine. Don't quote me on it. It's certainly worth asking whether consultant night working is beneficial. So Penn et al. report on a time series analysis of waiting times and adverse events before and after the introduction of an EM consultant working at a large university hospital. Interestingly, no significant differences were found. However, outcomes like patient satisfaction and trainee education were not studied. And you've got to wonder if there's a subtle difference in the shift with the consultant at the helm. Or maybe, maybe it's just a professional duty. Maybe you should discuss that on your next night shift or maybe just shut your eyes for a few minutes. So lots more in the issue, um, apart from the ones I've outlined here. There's stuff on whether we should be using the shock index. Gosh, that's been around a long time in the general population of ED patients. And there's a study on the outcomes of non-invasive ventilation in older patients. And the other thing, actually, go and have a look at the quality improvement articles, the editorial by Ed Carlton and Simon Smith on how the EMJ is going to be bringing uh, QIPs into the journal so that we can share the learning from what are often excellent projects. I've just marked some QIPs for the RCHEM exam and some of those are extremely high standard. So great stuff. Um, have a look at that. Enjoy your emergency medicine and no doubt we'll speak again soon.